with your permission, I want to talk about, we'll talk a little bit about tefillah. It comes up in the parasha. Right? Moshe Rabbeinu says to B'nai Yisrael, V'etchanan, the first pasuk, V'etchanan el Hashem ba'eta hilemot. V'etchanan, a difficult word. What makes it difficult is not the word itself, but comparing it to other words that mean something similar. In, in other words, if you ask the question, in what way is this word different than the word v'etpalel, for example, that's hard to answer. But if you just think of etchanan as a word representing tefillah, that's easy enough, okay? So Moshe Rabbeinu Davin. But when I say that Moshe Rabbeinu Davin, what do I mean? Like, why did he daven differently than when the Torah says with Palel? So <coughs> Rashi says, Rashi, look at Rashi. En chanun bekol makom, elon matnat chinam. Elon that the word chet nun nun, right? He says chanun, but the word, the root, chet nun nun, is somehow related to the root in Hebrew, chet nun mem. And mem and nun, you know, they get mixed up sometimes, or they, they're easily interchangeable. So ve'et chanan is like ve'et chanam. And chanam comes from the word chinam, for free. And that means Now this I find always an amazing statement in Rashi That when Tzadikim David They don't say I'm a Tzadik Therefore uh, grant my wish Or you know I have a lot of uh, uh, points in my account in heaven so grant my wish they don't say that right they say uh, they always ask give me something for nothing they never say give me something for in exchange for the goodness that I have done. Okay, that's what he says. The fisha amarlo, bechanoti et asher achom, right? That that this is the way God treats us. Amarlo bilshon vetchanan. So in other words, it's like Moshe Rabbeinu is standing before God, and he has no merits. He has no. He's not offering God, or he's not. He's not demanding some return on the basis of things that he did in the past. But he says, I, I don't have anything to offer, but I'm begging you. I'm begging God. Uh, so this is what this is what Rashi says. That the word Vetchanan is special. It's different than the word Vetpalel. The word Vetpalel is regular. Vetchanan is a is a word that could be used for the righteous. Because the righteous don't think that God owes them anything. But the non-righteous, they might think that uh, that they deserve special consideration <coughs> from HaKadosh Okay. 
דבר אחר, זה אחד מעשרה לשונות שנקראי תפילה כדי דמוספרי. So Rashi quotes, Rashi quotes the ספרי that says just that in Hebrew there are ten different roots that are used to mean to pray. Right? In other words, to sort of to say this word v'etchanan doesn't mean anything. It could have been Bet Palel. It could have been something else, right? But it, it, we, we should not look for meaning. It was Rashi is sort of stymied, I would say, that in this on this matter, Rashi is not clear. He doesn't help us to understand really why the verb Bet Hanan is used instead of the verb Bet Palel, which itself, which itself is interesting. The second half of the Pasuk says, Ba'eta hi lemor, ba'eta hi at that time, lemor. Okay, ba'eta hi, Rashi says this remarkable thing. So again, what are we talking about? We're talking about a neder. Who, whose nether are we talking about? Whose oath are we talking about? God, right? God's oath. God said, Moshe Rabbeinu, you and Aaron, you're not going into Eretz Israel. So the question, of course, is how could he have imagined, he, Moshe Rabbeinu, have imagined that you could pray for something that God has already closed the door on? I mean, just like, what, what is the process in which Moshe Rabbeinu thought of that? So... Rashi comes up with this interesting idea that since they conquered the land of Sichon Ve'og remember Sichon Ve'og were on the eastern side of the Jordan River right the eastern side of the Jordan River they conquered the land of they conquered the land of Sichon and Og and um, then uh, Moshe Rabbeinu gave that land away to Reuven who else? and God so that means what has already happened there's already been Nachla in Eretz Yisrael that's already happened and where is Moshe Rabbeinu? he's there He's there in Eretz Yisrael, which has already been given out to Reuven God so he came to the conclusion he, Moshe Rabbeinu came to conclusion, which is a problem that we have. We come to conclusions about things, which is why, you know, Adam and Chava made a mistake and ate from the Eitz Adat, because they thought incorrectly about things, so that to a certain extent the wild card in creation, even though the Kabbalah has other ideas, but the wild card in creation is our ability to reason. Because our ability to reason doesn't always bring me to the correct conclusion. But often brings me to an incorrect conclusion as any scientist right knows that one week the New England Journal of Medicine or whatever it is says we've just proven this and the next week they say oh we made a little mistake on the uh, addition or subtraction I mean in, in other words we can make mistakes <coughs> that's the wild card and here Moshe Rabbeinu according to Rashi made a mistake, and his mistake was that since he was already in Eretz Israel, and the Eretz Israel had been divided up 
between the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Chatzi, Shevet, Menashe. So what difference would it make if he crossed the Jordan River and went into the, uh, to the rest of Eretz Yisrael? So that's Be'etahi, that's what Rashi says Be'etahi means, right? And Sheva uh, Hutar uh, he came to the, uh, to the conclusion, he came to the conclusion, or, or he thought perhaps, that God had uh, uh, released him, released Moshe Rabbeinu from the oath that had been taken after the, uh, the event of hitting the rock for water instead of talking to the rock. So why, why would he have doubled it? What? If you really thought the oath was released, he says, I doubled by Beisahi mm-hmm. at that time, at the time when I thought the oath would be released. And why would he be doubling at that time if he thought the oath had been released? According to, according to me, according to you, according to Rashi. Rashi doesn't answer that question. Rashi doesn't answer your question. But you could... No, no, he doesn't. He said, how, how, could, how could Moshe Rabbeinu daven for something that is impossible? Like we all know that you can't do that. You can't daven for rain in the summer in Eretz Yisrael. What? So he explains why he thought it might have been possible. Right, but but there's a second step that that Moshe Rabbeinu thought that even something that could happen, that might happen, that would happen, demanded prayer. It's like it's like asking for rain in the winter. It, it, it was there's something that's normal, but somehow we are integrated in the process, in that normal process. So Moshe Rabbeinu thought Moshe Rabbeinu thought that that's what he should do. That's what he should do. He would get it. It was, according to Rashi, Moshe Rabbeinu would never daven for something that couldn't happen. So when it came to B'nai Israel, as Rav Nachman said in various, when it came to B'nai Israel, Moshe Rabbeinu was the ultimate defender of B'nai Israel, and therefore, he was always going to be right. Whatever he davened for B'nai Israel, he was going to win, because that's who he was. That was the job that God gave him. God gave him the job to defend B'nai Israel. And therefore, the obvious result of his defense is always going to be victory. Because that was the job. That's what God told him, God told him to do. But <coughs> when he came to Moshe Rabbeinu himself, that was not the case. He could not daven for the impossible. But he could daven for the possible. And it could be that that's how Moshe Rabbeinu evaluated the situation, that a person had to respond even to divine goodness. Right? If you respond by, 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 by Shevach Vodoyo, you respond by other kinds of filot, it was our obligation, or Moshe Rabbeinu's obligation as individual, to respond to the idea that he could go into Eretz Yisrael. Or it could be that if Moshe Rabbeinu didn't notice what had happened, and didn't indicate to the people what had happened, that he would again have failed as a leader of B'nai Israel because he had an obligation to lead them into religious devotion. Right? There had to be frum about it. And frum about it meant recognizing that things had changed. Even though he didn't understand why they had been changed, he hadn't done anything that there should be changed, but he understood that. That's Rashi. This is Rashi all the... Uh, this great Rashi, right? Uh, and then Rashi says about Lemor, you see the word Lemor. The word Lemor in the Chumash usually introduces a quote. Vayom Hashem al-Moshe, 
וידבר השם על משה לאמור So lemor is an un- unnecessary word. It just emphasizes the fact that what follows is a direct quote. Right? It's the words of God spoken by Moshe Rabbeinu to B'nai Yisrael. So here in the Pasuk it says, So what is lemor? What, what does the word lemor mean in this Pasuk? Because what follows... What follows is what Moshe Rabbeinu said to God. Not what God said to Moshe Rabbeinu. It's not Moshe Rabbeinu quoting something. It's Moshe Rabbeinu speaking. This is what he said. So Rashi says, makes an interesting comment. This comment is... Uh, uh, I, I can't read what I wrote here, but it's in the Rashi in Bamidbar, Yud... Gimel 13, or Yud Bet 13, Yud Bet 13. Rashi says about Lemor, look here at the word Lemor. So this is like, this is a different Lemor, Rashi says. This doesn't mean, quote, this means a strong, powerful statement by Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu says that my tefillah, my personal prayer, must be responded to. God must answer whether I can go to Eretz Yisrael or not. And there are three places which the Rashi and Babidbar uh, um, uh, notes. <coughs> okay? Pasuk of David, Hashem Elokim, Atach Ilotel, Arotet Avdecha, Et God Dechavet Yedcha Chazaka, Hashem Iel Vashemayim Laaretz Hashem Yasef Masek Vuvatel. You know that the names that are used for God are not obvious and not always easy to understand. As a general rule, as Rashi pointed out, Breshit Bara Elokim Et Hashemayim Vet Haaretz. Elokim. Midat din Midat din means if you deserve to be punished, you're going to get whacked. There's no mercy. Right? There's only din. Yudke Vavke is Rachamim. Is Rachamim. So you know that in the creation itself, in the creation itself, in the, in the beginning of the second chapter of Bereshis, the beginning of the second chapter of Bereshis, there is this change. Just one second. I love these little Tanachim, but I can't turn the pages. Base. Here. The Perek Bet Pasuk Dalit. It says, Eile Toldat HaShamayim Ba'aretz Bihibar Am. These are the Toldot, the generations, the histories of the creation of heavens and earth on the day so it's a change in the beginning of Paragalbus in the beginning of Paragbet it says that the creation was done by Hashem Hashem 
כן, בסדר, אבל כתוב בהלאה, כתוב ביום הסוף השם אלוקים ארץ ושמיים. בפרס פוסק זה זה אלוקים, ובפרס פוסק זה זה השם אלוקים. אז זה קשה לא לראות את זה. אז משהו השתנה. משהו השתנה. And it was realized in heaven that that could not be. And therefore the standard became Hashem Elohim. Hashem Elohim meaning Rachamim Bidin. That somehow mercy is uh, kind of mixed in with the Din. So everything changes. Everything changes. And this is the final change, of course, was after the Chet HaEgel. When Hashem... Shem said to Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem, Hashem, Kerachu, Vechanu, Nechapai, Vechesed, Vemet, meaning that you could, you could always be saved. Maybe not redeemed always, but you could always be saved. There'll, there'll always be Rachem. There's so much Rachem in the world. And this reminds us, this reminds us of the claim of the Ariza, which was adopted and repeated in Hasidut in every way imaginable so Arizal asked the question at the beginning of a book called Eitz Chayim that's like the big book that Rav Chaim Vital wrote Chaim Vital was the Talmud of the Arizal and he wrote the Torah of the Arizal and the first section the first question in the Eitz Chayim is why did God create the world which means the question means what was God missing so to speak that forced the creation of the world right you know whatever question so the answer the answer was that the divine potential to have mercy could never be satisfied without a created world it was if you say Hashem is Rachel V'chanon who before the world was created There was no way for Hashem to be Rachel V'chanon. There was nothing to be Rachel V'chanon about. You know, because it was only God. Only what they, they called Ein Sof. Which, of course, science has usurped and made into infinity. But Ein Sof was the way they, they referred to God. Right? The, uh, the medieval Kabbalists. referred to God as Ainsof and therefore all there was was God there wasn't anything else there wasn't anything else and since there was only God <coughs> how would God be Rachel V'chanon and therefore therefore God created the world because and so it had to be a world in which we could mess up Now, how that happened, how God, who is perfect, could create a world in which every, everything can get messed up, is a second question that the uh, Kabbalists tried to deal with. And they had different ways, had different ways of doing it. I mentioned one before, that we were granted with the power of analysis, which also gave us the ability to be mistaken, right? And to be certain about our, our mistakes. You know that the Yud Gimel Midot, Yud Gimel Midot Rabbi Ishmael, which are in the Sidur at the end of Brachot, at the beginning of the Sidur, before Pesukei de Zimra, 
which in a lot of shuls they actually do say that because if the people want to say Kaddish they get in an extra Kaddish you know who knows what but in the heavens they say they're looking down and they're saying well what are you saying Kaddish for if you're Mechal Shabbos you know what's the big deal I remember when I was a kid I, I already uh, uh, was amazed at the devotion that people who are Mechal Shabbos had to say in Kaddish it seemed like a contradiction in essence to me as a kid but I was very accepting so uh, anyway Rabbi Yishmael so Rabbi Yishmael lists the Yud Gimel Midot that's the famous bright of Rabbi Yishmael which is supposed to be uh, some kind of way that the Chachamim had of analyzing Sukim to produce new material, new Torah material. But only one of those uh, Midot have uh, innate, what we would call real innate logic. And that is the Midah called Kal V'chomer. If it's true for A, it should certainly be true for A+. plus. The Gemara says, interestingly enough, Ein on shin min hadin. Gemara Sanhedrin and other places. Ein on shin min hadin. You don't apply the punishment from the Kalvachomer. That means if A is guilty and his punishment is uh, Y, then B is certainly guilty, but you can't punish him. He doesn't get the same punishment. He gets the guilt, but he doesn't get the punishment. Ain't on shin min Why is that? Because the Chachamim realized, Rashi explains it in several places, the Chachamim realized <coughs> that that Kalva uh, Chomer is based on logic. And logic, or what we think is logical, often messes up. And therefore, you could establish guilt through a Kalva Chomer, but you can't execute a punishment through a Kalva Chomer because you might be mistaken. You might be mistaken. And all the other midot, you're not going to be mistaken. Because they don't make any sense. You understand? So if they don't make any sense, where did you learn? I mean, I admit that what I'm saying now is not obvious from every line in the Rambam. But I'm saying it anyway. If it's not obvious that it's correct then how do we know that it's correct? Huh? Tradition, nivua, superiority of the object. In other words, we have some other factor that makes it possible to say this is correct, without a doubt. So if it's correct, without a doubt, that it's really part of the Torah. Even though it's not written in the Torah, and even though it's not really implied in the Torah, but we know that it must be correct because we could not have reached that conclusion without an extraordinary kind of piece of information. It must come from somewhere like that. So, uh, that's very, very interesting. Well, how do I get to it? <laughs> Which? I wanted to talk about Hashem Elokim So you know You know that Hashem Is usually written Yud Kei Vav Kei And Elokim is usually written Aleph Lamed Hey Yud Mem 
But in this case, in this pasuk, the opening statement that Moshe Rabbeinu makes in his own defense is Hashem Elokim, but written, right, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, and then, and then Yud, Kei, Vav, Kei, right? So this is like a, a, a strange combination. Strange combination. Where's it? Rashi doesn't even know this, because Rashi says Hashem Elokim, Rashi, Rachum Bedim, as I explained before. Right, that there is merciful judgment. So it's just like it said, Hashem Elohim at the beginning of Perik Bet, where it says Yud Kei Vav Kei Elohim Aleph Lamed A Yud Men. So that's that's what Rashi says. Then, uh, well, Rashi doesn't take note of the Hashem Elohim, the spelling of it, and the way the words are presented. Atach Kilotar Laroted Abdecha Et Gadlecha Veet. You have shown, you have shown your servant, your power, your greatness, your strength. Rashi Laroted Avdicha Patach Liyot Omeid Umit Palev Av Alpi Shenik Zera Zera Amalo Minchalam Alati. So he says, Moshe Rabbeinu is arguing his case, even though even though Moshe Rabbeinu has this lumbus, according to Rashi, he said, I'm in Eretz Yisrael already, so why shouldn't I go further into Eretz Yisrael? So Rashi says, no, no. Patach liyot omeit umit even though God has said that he's not going to go into Eretz Yisrael Amarlo. You have told me that this is Rashi's theory that sometimes, sometimes you have to daven. It's true that it's almost there. It's almost going to happen. Moshe Rabbeinu is almost going to be allowed to go to Eretz Yisrael, but you have to daven. You have to daven. And that he learned from HaKadosh Baruch Hu Kimo Kein Ha'iti Savul HaSot Achshav Shebita Lui Litpalel Anehem. I have to daven for B'nai Yisrael. That's what God told me after the Chet Ha'egel. So now here I think also that I have to daven for myself. And that I have to daven myself. So you see that this davening business it's kind of not obvious. It's not simple. <coughs> now, if you look at the Ramban, let's look at the Ramban. Hashem Elokim. You see Pasuk of Dalit? See Pasuk of Dalit? It's like, I would say, 40% of the way down in the Ramban. That's what I would say. Is that close? Hashem Elokim. Rachum Bedin Lashon Rashi. This is the Ramban. Now you know that the Ramban was a Kabbalist. Yes, even though he appears in the Mikraot Gedolot, he was a real Kabbalist. And he thought, he thought, the Ramban thought that in order to understand the Torah, you have to have this two-pronged approach. You have to understand the neglect, the, the revealed kind of explanation that everybody uh, had to learn. And you also had to understand the Nistar, the hidden uh, understanding, which um, was limited to only to a few. But the Ramban, in his commentary on the Torah, which I think is a commentary that's aimed at regular people, I mean, you know, who are somewhat learned, 
Nevertheless, the Ramban includes in his very uh, long commentary on the Torah a lot of Kabbalistic material, which seems to me to mean that there was certain Kabbalistic material that he thought everybody should be privy to. That it was not problematic. It was not problematic. I don't think he, uh, he saw it as something that you just say without thinking about it, uh, but that it was useful. The Ramban thought it was useful in understanding the basic intention of the Pasuk. Just like the Nigle commentary was really there to help me understand what the Pasuk is saying. The same thing is true about the, uh, about the Nistar. Now look at this. We have to go through this here. Hashem Elohim, Rachum B'din, Lashon Rashi, V'lo Ishkiach Arav, so you see my question? Not so clever of me, since the Ramban asked the question. In other words, the, Ram, the Ramban said that, you know, when it came to names of God and the use of the names of God in the Tanakh, the Kabbalah was the, the primary source, so to speak. The Kabbalah was very interested in this question. So the Ramban said, look, Rashi didn't relate at all to the way these words are spelled. And then he says, It's true that Yud Kevavke is Rachamim, Elohim is Din. But that's when they're spelled in a normal way. Here they spelled it a unreasonable way. If that was the simple intention of the pasuk, okay, they would spell it as it's spelled at the end, at the beginning of the second chapter of of Breishit. right? Adon What does it mean? Of the master of mercy. The master of mercy, not mercy in judgment, but the master of mercy. is a medrash, right? The medrash ilamdenu is another name for. It's a, like a quiz question. Quiz questions they come up all your whole life; they never stop. Ilamdenu is the tanhuma, what's called the tanhuma, and many paragraphs in the medrash tanhuma start with the words ilamdenu rabbeinu. Rabbeinu is the Tanchuma, Rabbeinu Tanchuma. So in the literature, in the rabbinic literature, it's often called Medrash Ilamdeinu, right? Ilamdeinu. Amarlo, Ibono Lamim, Im mitbai li bedin, havli, vilo mitbai li bedin, rachem alai. That if I deserve this, my judgment, give it to me. And if not, then have mercy on me. Kishem Shemar Abraham, this is Moshe Rabbeinu, like, like the master of mercy. So Moshe Rabbeinu says to God, if I'm supposed to go to Eretz Israel now, as Rashi said, right, because they conquered the land of Sichon Ba'od, let me go in. But if not, if not, then, uh, then have mercy on me and, uh, and let me in anyway. Right, 
So up to now, he's explained that here, the, the, when, God, when Moshe Rabbeinu turns to God, according to the Ramban, Moshe Rabbeinu understands that that he he's in a kind of a quasi position. He doesn't know if he really deserves to go into Eretz Israel according to the situation, but he thinks that the situation demands him. Uh, uh, relating to the question, right? In, in other words, there's been a change. He just doesn't know what the implication of that change is. So he says to God, if I deserve it, so let me go in. And if I don't deserve it, have mercy on me. That I will be able That's what, why, why the names of God are used as the opening to this prayer. Okay? And I'm going to tell you about what's going on here. Rashi's question here the Rabban asks Rashi's question but openly he says why is this word used and not the regular word the regular word in Moshe Rabbeinu he's talking about a tchina like, that's what he's saying why what's a tchina Ramar Adon Asher Rachamim in other words, Moshe Rabbeinu is looking to God and saying, I realize the greatness of God. And the greatness of God even overwhelms the nether, even overwhelms what was the position, the, the previous position, I see, I understand who God is and how great and how strong. And from this you will see why God got angry at Moshe Rabbeinu. He got angry at Moshe Rabbeinu because he assumed that something had changed, that God had owed him something, so to, so to speak. Aval Hashem Sifri, the Medrash says, Kol makom shabah Hashem, zomidas rachamim shenemar Hashem, kel rachum v'chanun, Hashem Hashem, kel rachum v'chanun, elokim zomidat here the word Elohim means Dayanim. So the way the Rabban works it out is that Moshe Rabbeinu understood something. And the something that he understood indicated to him that he should make the request, that he should stand before God. But in fact, God got angry because Moshe Rabbeinu should have understood, should have understood that in spite of his reasoning, the nether would remain, that there would be no change, and that going to Eretz Israel meant crossing the Jordan River onto the west side and had nothing to do with what happened with Sichon and Og. And then the Ramban says... Rabban says, 
Yavru v'yishu ota imlo yukav otam dor tzore umore. In other words, that, that's the point. The, the point here is that you, we ask for superior knowledge from the Avot and Moshe Rabbeinu, even though the children who are going to go into Eretz Israel don't have that, that superior knowledge. Which brings us to an interesting question, I think, which is discussed here in the, in the turn the page in Shemi Shmuel. Shemi Shmuel? What? The Shemi Shmuel is? Sochachov. Rav Shmuel, he's the son of the Sochachov, who wrote very important, several very important Sfarim. And in Yeshivot, he's referred to by the names of his Litvashit type Svarim, like the Egletal and the Shilas and Shubas of the Egletal or Shilas and Shubas of the Sovachor. So that uh, in Yeshivot they managed to keep, to separate. It's like the Rambam. The Rambam in the Yeshivot is the Yad HaChazaka. It was very rare that anybody in the Yeshiva would mention the Mora Nebuchim. Just as many people in the university think that the Rambam wrote the Mora Nebuchim and they don't know that he also wrote it. This kind of dichotomy is, um, is quite remarkable, I think. So the same thing is true with the Sokhachov. The Sokhachov was a real Rebbe. Like, you don't have that in Yeshivot. But the Svarim that he wrote are very highly regarded in Yeshivot. And in the Mishnabura, right close to Sokhachov, um, so that this distinction between the Hasidut and the Halakha exists for the Sochachov as well. Now Shmuel was his son. The Sochachov apparently was not a great writer, didn't write easily, and his son wrote up a lot of the stuff that he said, you know, Shabbatot, and he was his... Is it Boswell? Is he Boswell? Which one wrote? Boswell. Boswell. So he's Boswell, the son, Shmuel. So listen to this. Listen to what he says. Rashi. You remember Rashi? Mm-hmm. It's somehow parallel to Chetnun Mem, which means Chinam free for nothing. That tzaddikim don't go and ask God for compensation. I did mitzvot. Do me a favor and and do something good for somebody. That's Rashi, right? This is Rashi. Adkad Meshono, the second line. Yesh lahavin. The Shevish rule says, I don't understand. Alo yodua. Shekol mashe adam tzaddik biyoter. Biyodeya et gadlut Hashem yitbarach. Hu yodeya biyoter. So this is like a Hasidic idea. He says, everybody understands that the greater you are, the more you understand that the way you did it is not good enough. In, in, in other words, there's, there's elasticity in doing mitzvot and listening to God and achieving 
some sort of spiritual level. It's, it's, it's elastic. So everybody's a shul together. All the people are shul together. They're all doing the same mitzvah. You know, they're shaking the lulav. Like that's always a pretty kind of simple, straightforward kind of mitzvah. It's hard to mess up. Shaking the lulav. But you know, the, the Shemesh rule says some people shake the lulav and they're in heaven. And some people shake the lulav and they're on their way home. So there's a difference between in the ways that you can perform a mitzvah. They're not, according to the Shemesh rule, they're not pro forma. They're not something you just do. So he says, Somebody who's righteous knows that God is great and that His commands are profound. That he hasn't really done anything yet. He shaked the lula, but he didn't really do it. Lomat God is so great that how can I even imagine that I've done it? So the Shemesh said, what's Rashi talking about? What's he talking about? These tzaddikim who are not going to ask God for anything. Of course they're going to ask God for anything because they don't think they did it. Not because it's a measure of their sitkut. Not because tzaddikim are like sort of quiet and naive and they say, they say, well, I didn't really do anything. No, because he really didn't do anything. It's really real what he says. Right, because because he he was not able to penetrate the profundity of the mitzvah act. He's just doing, he's just imitating. I mean, how could it be that the same thing is done by a five-year-old child and a 70-year-old man, woman, right? How could it be? It can't be the same. But if it is the same, then you know that you didn't do much. So he says, he said, Shevi Shmuel. This is a well-known story. Remember, he was a Gaon, Bavel, had a tremendous impact in his own lifetime and philosophy and halakha. And and still today, he he translated the Chumash into into Arabic. And the Yemenites, to this day, when they read the Torah, they read the Targum in between each, after each Pesach, which makes Kriyata Torah very long. But that Targum that they read is the Targum of Rapsadjagod. It's not, it's not Unkelos. So what did Rapsadjagod say? Shasad Shuva Bekol Yom Akotzer Avodad Etmo. What do you think about that? Every day, Rapsadjagod did Shuva on the mess that he made yesterday. Right, you know, he had to say Brachot, he had to put on Tfilet, he had to do, he, he made a mess of it. He knew that he was not successful in achieving the level of mitzvah action that he should have been. So he was learning. He was learning Torah. He was learning Torah. He understood more and more and more. So what he understood today, he had understood yesterday. What he didn't understand yesterday. Rav Nachman said something similar about you know about doing uh, about uh, about tshuva. He says you do. He says it backwards. Like Rav Sadiq says it this way. Rav Nachman says it the other way. He says, well, when you do tshuva, you come close to God. You come closer to God. And the first thing you realize when you come close to God is that you didn't do enough tshuva. So that tshuva is like that 
that puzzle with the hair and the tortoise and the hair, tortoise and the hair, like you never win. You never get enough chuva to cover all the averis because chuva itself is expandable. And chuva creates a new person. I mean, it gives you new insights. And when you have those new insights, you say, gee, you know, I didn't do enough chuva. So there's a <coughs> question in Allah. <coughs> appears in the Shai Chuva also. Do I have to do chuva on something I did chuva for last year? The question? I mean, it's not a question of a depressed Protestant. It's a question of a spiritually inclined person. If chuva, if chuva can only be done by the spirit within me, then if I feel I've gained spirit, I've somehow developed, maybe I should do chuva again, right? It's an interesting, it's an interesting question. Uh, you see, Bechol Yom Chadashot Begadut Hashem Yitparach, Bedrash, Mekadat Alameh She'ein, Lebir Yeklum Eitzel Bar'o, that there is no connection between the created and the creator being Cain. So he says, what's Rashi talking about? Of course the tzaddikim are not going to go to God and say, I have money in the bank. Because they know that the money in the bank is being depleted. Right? It's losing its value every second. So they're not going to do it. This, this question of the Jamie Shmuel. So I can translate it the language of, of davening. You say, well, I mean, how can you daven? How can you ask for anything? What is your, what is the basis on which you ask? So he says, even Sadiqim don't have a basis to ask for, for anything when they're davening, right? They that Sadiqim understand that they have not achieved a thing. The Kotzka Rebbe was his father's father-in-law. Does that make sense? Right? His father, the Sochachavah, married the daughter of the Kotzka after his first wife died. So he says, this is my grandfather, right? The Kotzka was my grandfather, he was. He gets a perush b'maasim tovim shatidim leasot akandvarav. So that's the kotzka. He said that what Rashi was talking about was not the credit that you have from the past, but the credit that you hope to have in the future. That the tzaddikim would come to God and say, "Look, I, I hope to do better." And based on that, I'd like to ask you for a little mercy, right? So that's the kotzka's vort. That the future also counts. That, and he says, he, the Sochachavah, the Shemesh Shmuel says, Eino Muvan, Shemikram Aleinu. He says, he's not like that. He says, a posuk in Mishlei, Al titalel biyom machar, ki lo teida mayal hediyom. I mean, you can't, can't say much about that. Al titalel, don't be so proud of Yom Machar, of what you're going to do tomorrow. Because, I mean, you don't really know what's going to happen. So there's a machlokis between the Shemi Shmuel and the Kotzker. The Kotzker says, 
you can draw on the account of the future that somehow the present indicates the future even though you know that in the present you haven't done it yet but you're on the road you're on the road if you're on the road you should be able to demand that the future will also be in the cheshbon I woke up to say Mishmuel he says look he's a posseg in the it's uh, a posseg in Mishle which seems to say exactly the opposite so you see that the Chachamim were having that these uh, we're all having trouble with Moshe Rabbeinu what is he doing? What is his davening? What is all this? I just wanted to mention to you something that I came across recently for other other reasons. There is this series of um, yeah, there is this series. This is like a fascicle. Can you call this a fascicle? A choveret. A choveret. This guy Schreiber. His name is B. David Schreiber. He went through Rabbi Salavechik's oral sheurim and, uh, you know, collected it and then just copied it out and, and printed it. And it's called Sefer Nora'ot Harad. The terrible, the, the, the awesome, awesome, I guess, awesome words of Rabbi Salavechik, but it's not really ordered in any way. It's, it's like what the Shia that the Rav gave. They didn't take the parts about this topic and put them here and that topic, but they just like wrote it out. And this, as you could see, well you can't see. You can't see, but if you could see, you see I have, I have a couple of these of them. This is, was printed in February 1999. Here on the on the spine, it says ten. It is, I I have nine and ten, eight, nine and ten. So he put out at least ten in nineteen ninety nine. But now, of course, it's on the internet. You don't have to buy any of them, and I just have them as museum pieces. But it's on the internet. You can you can access all of this. You can access the word nineteen ninety nine. Which is about Purim, Esther, and Torah Shaval Peh. That's what that's what he says here. But here, let's see what the what Rabbi Salavechik says. He was talking to Korach. He was talking about Korach. He says there's another reason for according priority to the act over the experience. He's talking about davening, really. The act, you daven. And we all know there's a mitzvah of davening. We all know that this is the kind of thing that people are annoyed by. Like, how, how could I daven? I, mean, I don't feel like davening. I daven. I feel like davening. I can't daven. I don't feel like davening. You know, all that kind of. So the Rav is here expressing the literature position, which is that the only thing you could know about God is what God told us to do. Again, there's nothing else you could know. There's nothing else. You know, God is is wholly other, right? Rudolf Otto, he's out there someplace. Uh, there's no way to connect. There's no way to connect. All that we can do is to do the mitzvah. So if you see that even in the last hundred years, the way the ideology of the yeshivot has developed, you know, the guys in yeshiva, it has always to do with details. They always get you on a detail. Right? Everybody who's had children in yeshivot and they come home, you know that the first thing they say 
is you got to do it this way and not that way. And that's, that's a philosophical position, according to Rabbi Salavajah, because the only thing, it's the literature position, the only thing you can know about God is what God said He wants of us. That's all. And therefore, if you want to know more about God, you have to learn more about Alulav. Right? Learning more about Alulav is somehow parallel to learning more about God, as strange as that may seem. It's a very welcoming kind of ideology, because trying to understand about God is a little bit too difficult for 99% of the people in the world, and it's certainly not something that you could run the organization called Jewish People on. But if you say that you need an Esrog, oh, that everybody can get into. Everybody can get into it on whatever level you are at. Everybody can get into buying an Esrog, having an Esrog, looking at their Esrog, thinking about their Esrog, whatever it is. So the Rav said, there's another reason for according priority to the act. This is page, I'm reading on page 92. 92. To the act over the experience, it is simply impossible to determine what is what and who is who. We can never determine what is a religious experience in contradistinction to a hedonic, mundane experience. I could read this with passion. You want me to do that? Mm-hmm. The Rav was great at that. I mean, he just was uh, unbelievable. There's some tapes of shiurim that they used to sell in bookstores. You know, Korach and uh, Chukas. Just tremendous. We know many hedonic emotions which are provided with... Uh, enormous power which are hypnotic and at first class redemptive one may easily confuse the religious drive with the love impulse it is quite normal to replace the religious aesthetic craving with aesthetic yearning of the artist there are common characteristics in both of them the question of exaltedness and infinity is typical of both the experience of beauty and of religion to substitute secular for religious emotion is again an idolatrous method. The pagans of old would indulge in hypnotic or orgiastic ceremonials, mistakenly identifying them with the religious experience. The Torah provided idolatrous practices to be introduced in the ritual service of God. And then he says, the rousing of religious awareness by confronting it with the powerful hypnosis of the aesthetic experience such as music, art, architecture is alien to halakha Judaism. Yes, he said that. Rabbi Salvation, you know that very modern orthodox rabbi? He said that. It's all shtuyot. And what he means, and even though I, he didn't think so in a, in a universal kind of way, you know, he... He could have been seen a lot of people, including himself, as exceptions to these general rules. But in general, in general, he said, he, what he said is that prayer is an obligation. We call that a mitzvah. At least most, most of us accept the definition of the Rambam, which is that davening twice a day, at least or twice a day, is a mitzvah min ha-Torah modified by the Chachamim. The mitzvah in the Torah is that you should daven once a day. The Chachamim said you should daven twice a day. 
But they didn't say why you're davening. But why are we davening? So the Rav would say, the Rav would say, it's not that we are interested so much in having a religious experience called tefillah, which is what Chassidut said. Chassidut said you could do that. You could have a religious experience called tefillah. But we are davening because it's, there's a mitzvah to daven. And therefore when I think about davening in the morning, when I say think about davening in the morning, I think about what time is it? And where am I up to? And am I going too fast? Am I going too slow? Am I, uh, am I standing where I'm supposed to be sitting? Am I sitting where I'm supposed to be standing? That's what I think about. That's what I think because that's the way into davening. But if I try to absorb, uh, to create an experience which is not halakhically viable, like, I hate this, I'm going to say it, when I hate what I'm going to say, like a Kalbach minion. Right? Like, what are you doing with a Kalbach What do you do with a Kalbach minion? Why do people go to Kalbach minion? Because they like it, I imagine. And what don't they like? They don't like going to shoe. So they go to Kalbach minion. So, according to this, this is page 92 and 93. Point to this. You can't do that. You can't do that because the Shukhanach does not mention Kalbach Minyanim. It's not in there any place. In the Shul that I dabbled in, there's an ongoing week after week after week disagreement about whether they should sing Lechadodli or not. And if they do sing Lechadodli, it has to be in the one Melody that makes you unhappy. But the thought of, of singing Lechadodi with a uh, melody that is joyous is absolutely anathema to some of the people who are davening in the shul. And I understand that it comes from this fear, because of this fear of involving emotion in a way that is unreasonable. And here the rub goes pretty far to say that after all, emotional responses were very common to idolatrous practice. The people who uh, <coughs> the people who who practiced idolatry, you know, got themselves all revved up for whatever was gonna happen by, by with music, with dancing, with with all kinds of, you know, smoke and, 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 and things like that. So that this problem of Moshe Rabbeinu, the problem of what was Moshe Rabbeinu doing, why was he davening at all, uh, is something that might concern us today. You know, I mean, everybody has a position, everybody has a position of davening, and you know that the Hasidim and the Misnagdim are profoundly in disagreement about what davening is all about. What davening is all about. You know, there's a story about the Nitziv. Uh, the Nitziv was the Russian chief of the Lodge. And the Elul, you know, all the new students came, and Elul, so they davened, they were davening chakras. And uh, the Nitziv finished davening after whatever number of minutes he davened in Shwan and there was still a new student who was davening Shmuel Esri and kept davening and kept davening. And he was a Chakasinsha guy who came to the yeshiva because he was probably a talented, a talented student. So after Shabbos, the Tzib goes over and he says, In this yeshiva, I say the longest Shmuel Esri. <laughs> it means like, you can't run away with you, right? You can't, 
got to think about the obligations and what it is that you're supposed to be doing. So, okay. <laughs>